Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that happens to address the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. We're hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. Hi, David. Hi, Peter. Hi, Anna. And Anna Vocino. Hi, Anna. Hello. Are you okay? Everybody good? I'm doing great. <laughs> I never know with Anna if she's telling, telling the truth. I'm fantastic. You would lie to us. Well, anyway, let's move on. We're, That's talking, a we're talking about bedside matters. Let's get to yes, the, the yes, doctor stuff. You're exactly right. On today's episode, we're going to discuss, this is so sad and yet could be beneficial. This poor woman had 12 types of cancers in 40 years, which is insane. 12 different types of tumors, but she's being studied and it looks like she may be the key to some treatment, future treatment. Could be something that saves a lot of lives. And then the second thing we're going to be covering is how late night eating could lead to diabetes and weight gain. I mean, to me, that sounds a little self-explanatory, but we're going to get Dr. Kipper's perspective. I got to tell you, that's my only kind, that's my only kind of eating. Also, and this just happened, and this relates to David's book, Brain Function and Neurotransmitters, some new information they've just found out. And of course, David's book, Override, is all about how your brain transmitter, your neurotransmitters control basically most of your behaviors. And if you're having problems, maybe you should take a look at the book and figure out what neurotransmitters doing that or making you do that or making you stop doing something. You know, maybe you want to change your behavior and you can't. So, uh, and then, hey, what about me? We got a call about COVID because there's so many questions right now about COVID. The rate is going back up here in Los Angeles. There's all kinds of stuff like, hey, if I got it, is it worse that I got it twice or have I built up immunity? Uh, and then there's some people who just haven't gotten COVID, which is, there's some really interesting aspects to that too. So we're going to address all of that. David, can we start first with this woman who got to 12 types of cancers? Can you imagine, you get that diagnosis once, what must that feel like to, be, to get that phone call again and again and again? So this woman is now 36. This study was done in Spain. She's the only person ever to be identified as having this one gene mutation. It's called the MAD1L1 gene, and it controls cell replication. What happens with this is that because this gene is a mutation, it creates these replicated genes that are either creating too many chromosomes or too few chromosomes. So when it creates too many chromosomes and there's more cells that are created, this is what a tumor is. A tumor is a collection of mutated cells. I think five of these tumors were malignant tumors. But the other side of this equation, which is really interesting, this mutation also affects the immune system and specifically the lymphocytes that fight cancer. What's happening there is that these cells, the lymphocytes, with their mutation are creating pro-inflammatory cells that kill the cancers and kill the tumors. So she's creating and destroying these tumors within her system. So the interesting part of this, first of all, what's really interesting is that in order to get this mutation for the genetics of this, you have to have a father and a mother with this mutation. And I think it's one reason we don't see much of this. So it's really an unusual set of circumstances. But what it does is that it opens up this conversation about, can we find a way to create this gene mutation? So the body can fight it on its own? Yes. Wow. Therefore, creating these lymphocytes that are going to now go after these tumors. So she gets a cancer diagnosis of a tumor, and then it fights it. And then a couple years later, she gets another tumor. 
they then turn on that tumor and begin to successfully fight that. And this has gone on for 40 years? Yes. And this goes on simultaneously. She had some benign tumors while she had a malignant tumor. And so they're discovering these tumors in her, but they realize they don't have to do anything about it. She's taken care of this. She also was genetically, because of this, along with that sort of odd behavior. She was born microcephalic. She had a small head. She was a little overweight. She had skin lesions. She had normal intelligence, but her physical attributes were also affected by this mutation. Wow. What a story. Jeez. So she's not had to undergo any treatment because her body does it. Correct. Correct. We have another story here, a new study that came out about late night eating contributing to diabetes and and weight gain. And so I was wondering, Doc, what's your take on this? It looks like it has something to do with some time-restricted eating, high fat, high carb. What's shaking with all this? Well, your instinct at the top of the show is that this is not really a surprise. There are several reasons for this. But the fundamental reason here is that our circadian rhythm wants our fat cells to also take a nap and rest. So they're not programmed to manage this kind of energy input from the carbs and the fats. And the amino acid creatine is responsible for actually helping to convert these foods into energy, but we don't make the creatine at night. It's interesting. Bodybuilders use creatine to build their muscles and to build their system. So that's one problem is that They're not designed to do this. So when people are eating late at night, they're not generating energy. They're creating more fat. It's just not being converted. And so this is the fundamental problem here. But we have a group of people, and this gets into the neurotransmitter conversation, that stay up late. These are the ones that obviously eat late because the other group is sound asleep. And people stay up late because they have an intrinsic dopamine deficiency. They're looking to be stimulated. They stay awake in order to stay stimulated. The other group, the serotonin group, they actually have an eating disorder because they eat to soothe bad feelings, but they're asleep at night. So the the group that's staying up are the dopamine group, and they eat because when they eat, they get a dopamine bump and that keeps them stimulated, and that keeps them going. The problem with that is if you're eating late at night, and you're staying awake at night, and you're not digesting these fats and carbohydrates appropriately, you're going to have an increase the next day in cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone, comes from the adrenal gland, and the cortisol is produced also to keep you awake because you didn't sleep the night before. But cortisol drives you, in order to stay awake, to eating fats and carbs. Have you ever noticed when you've had a rough night and you haven't slept, the next day anything in a cracker box is fair game or chips or whatever? We unconsciously drive ourselves to these fats and carbohydrates. So the idea that people develop diabetes and obesity from late night eating makes perfect sense. I think in a previous show, we spoke about melatonin. Melatonin made between 11 at night and 2 in the morning. If you're up and you're snacking away, you're going to miss that melatonin surge. So that also disrupts your circadian rhythm. Without melatonin, we don't have the circadian rhythm, not just to clean up 
our brain, but also every other organ system. Can I ask a question? No, you can. of course you can. Is it medical or is it, is it, about, is it about a pension? It's medical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing intermittent fasting, so I don't eat after 7.30 at night, but I stay up till about two o'clock in the morning. So am I missing my melatonin? I'm not getting my melatonin then? Correct. But the intermittent fasting, which is a great idea, but are you starting eating early in the morning or are you giving yourself like a six hour or an eight hour window to eat? I eat from 1.30 to 7.30. Oh, that's fantastic. And this has been around for a couple hundred years so that your body gets used to metabolizing food within a, a short period of time. And the rest of the time, the body is, is no longer being fed, obviously, and no longer working in order to do that. And you have a much better, healthier nutritional cycle and- Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me just like reveal something here. So I said to Laurie one night, so you still do <laughs> fasting? And she says, yeah, can I sell it? Can I tell this? She goes, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, so what do you eat before, like as your last meal? She says, usually like an ice cream sundae. So I thought, oh, that's kind of a fascinating way to approach. It's the Baskin Robbins intermittent fasting. I plan. My friend actually calls it the Caligula IF because that's what she does. She has one meal a day, but eats like an insane, stupid um, diet, and but only eats from like noon to 2 p.m. But eats so like Caligula, like a King of and then feast, the feast <laughs> yeah. scene with like Parkinson's exactly. <laughs> but she's listen. She's a television oh, star. She keeps God, the weight off. Great. So I'm like, whatever works, I guess. But Lori, when you're eating in that window, uh, have you found that over time you're not really eating? You may eat whatever you want, but you're not eating as much. Very true. I don't do the banana splits anymore. Oh. Progress. Just, it's no longer Ben and Jerry. She's just doing Jerry. Half a portion. <laughs> but you know what? You get your you get fuller faster. I bet. Well, that's it, and you're not thinking about it so much. So you just you just eat, and then you take a break. You're you're fuller. You really are. Your stomach distends when you put food in there. It digests the food. Stomach shrinks down, and it doesn't fill up again until you start eating again. But you're right, Anna, when you start eating again, you're gonna fill up, your stomach's gonna expand. You're gonna actually recognize that feeling. We all get that feeling, but we- Yeah, but we realize that- Once we're fact, six right. years old, we're, right, we're not right. paying attention to that. I tell you what, after not really doing a lot of carbs and doing intermittent fasting for so long, I feel like Thanksgiving is very disappointing for me because I get full so fast. And, and I used to be a real pro at Thanksgiving. Like I could really knock it out of the park and no longer. I'm like, ah, I'm full. My aunt sits at the table sweating like she did a marathon. It's always Your you aunt know. is all of our hero. There you go. By the way, David, if we can just address the neurotransmitter part of this, this just happened because we're talking about it relating to sleep and, and producing, you know, the, the drugs you need to sleep. Talk about what they're realizing with psychiatry and treatment and taking into consideration your neurotransmitter. So the way we treat these deficiency syndromes in either serotonin or dopamine, and again, each one of these has their own very specific behaviors. People that are shy in serotonin, which is this calming transmitter, they are seeking more calm. They're, that's their goal. They are cautious. They are not acting on impulse. 
They are attracted to things, substances that promote serotonin, like alcohol, opiates, benzodiazepines. People that are shy in the stimulating hormones, dopamine, those people are seeking stimulation. And so every stimulating event gives a dopamine bump. Those people, that group, are risk takers, have a tremendous problem with controlling their impulses, which is why in this group, we tend to see behavioral addictions like sex addictions, gambling addictions, shopping addictions. And again, their drive intrinsically unconsciously is to seek some kind of stimulation, the late night eaters. What's interesting in how this works is that in order for serotonin or dopamine, these neurotransmitters to make their effect known to the brain, they have to hook into a receptor. So think of a lamp. You want to turn on a lamp. You take the plug from the cord and you put it into a wall socket. So the wall socket is the receptor and the plug is the neurotransmitter. So when you plug in the neurotransmitter into its receptor, then you get the reaction, the behavior that the brain wants. Some of the drugs that control these behaviors there are certain medical conditions that make this problematic. You may want to tamp down this amount of, let's say, dopamine. If you put gum in a light socket, you're not going to get that plug or that transmitter onto the receptor. So when you look at opiate treatment, for instance, some of the opiate treatments are plugging up the opiate receptors in the brain. So people can take an opiate but they're not going to get an opiate effect because they're not going to make that connection. Right. So what they're doing now is that they're studying the receptors to see how they can manipulate the receptors to either be more receptive to these transmitters or less receptive, depending on whether they want to amp it up. Is this or something new, David, or have they, been work, have they been working on this for a long time, just not broken the code, or are they now just getting close to breaking the code? We've known this for many years. What we're now doing, however, with the pharmaceuticals is trying to see how best we can manipulate these. And here's, a, here's an interesting example of this. You're in a classroom, you have a little kid that's not focused, hyperactive, running around the room, and why in the world would you give that kid a stimulant? Doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. The reason, and the stimulants are dopamine. So Ritalin, Adderall, Dexedrine, those are stimulants. They are dopamine. You're giving the kid dopamine. You're giving them a stimulant. And the answer to this is that their behavior is such because they're lacking dopamine. Their behavior, their hyperactivity, their lack of focus is their way of searching out for a stimulating event. Now you give them these stimu stimulating drugs and they calm down. If on the other hand, if you had a serotonin deficiency and you give that kid a stimulant, well, you gotta scrape that kid off the wall. They have enough dopamine. Now, now you're overloading their system Jeez. and they're very agitated and uncomfortable. So a very interesting thing for parents to think about um, Peter, we spoke about this a lot on our program years ago. And this is a common phone call that I will get. I have a child that the teachers say is hyperactive. I think that may be true. So we're taking the kid for all these tests and psychological evaluations. None of those things are perfect in predicting whether this child has ADHD. 
the way you find out if you suspect this is on a Saturday morning, you give the kid four things, three or four things to do, and you give them a small dose of one of these stimulants. And if they all of a sudden calm down and get all this stuff done and are focused, there's your diagnosis. Wow. If, if the kid is not doing that, it's the opposite, that rejects that diagnosis. Does this react immediately when somebody takes it? Peter, that's a great question. So with the dopamine imbalances, those people react immediately, which is good because that's a group that needs immediate gratification and they need reward. And the serotonin group, they can take weeks before their system is back in balance, which is why if you're given an SSRI like Prozac or Lexapro or Zoloft, those drugs take up to four to eight weeks before you're starting to see an effect with their anxiety levels, their depressive levels. So here's another thing that happens in this scenario. So you have a child that's hyperactive. And the parents, and I, I respect this and I understand this, but they don't want to give medication. They think they can treat this behaviorally. You can't. You have to rebalance their brain chemistry. So what happens? So this kid is going through school. They're falling behind in math because that's a cumulative process. Their reading stinks. And as every year goes by, they're falling further and further behind their classmates. So now all of a sudden they get to junior high school and the workload is even worse and they try this medication. They are so far behind at that point. Mm. Their, their self-esteem mm -hmm. is in the toilet. They think they're stupid and it's really because they weren't properly medically treated. So you may think of this as a drug in diabetes. You have an organ, the pancreas, it doesn't make enough insulin. No one has a problem with a diabetic taking a drug. This is a different organ, the brain, that's not making enough of its substance, dopamine or serotonin. People have a hard time with that. They can't, there's something very connotative about that. Interesting. And, yeah. and people react in a very different way. Even today, it's insane. Before COVID, I can go to a movie and it's the best movie and I'm enjoying the movie. And halfway through, I'm going, I wonder how much longer it is because yeah. I, ha I, and I hate that, but it's just who I am sitting in a classroom for an hour. Oh my God. It was like torture being forced to yeah. sit to excruciate. And my I love learning. I love being, I Me love too, learning. I love reading. I, I finally, finally, but I'm still was like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. I've got ants in my pants. There you I go. Move. My mother used to say that, ants in your pants. So let's do our, hey, what about me? Because it's about COVID. We got a caller, David, who has a question about COVID and the confusion that a lot of people, including all of us, except probably you, are experiencing. I'll, I'll let this person tell you. Hi, Dr. Kipper. This is John. I think I was exposed to COVID and I'm starting to experience symptoms, but all my home tests have been negative. I asked urgent care for the Paxlovid, but they said I had to go to the ER or call my primary care physician who I wouldn't be able to reach until Monday because this was this past weekend. I'm so confused at the information out there what treatment to ask for, do I need to get a test, etc. I just want to know what to do to minimize being sick and not get long COVID. Thanks for your help. So if you were to ask 10 doctors this same question that John's asking, 
And let's say that half of those doctors are treating COVID on a regular basis and the other half are not. They may not be internists or general practitioners. They may have other specialties. And you're listening to all that's going on in the media about when's the right time to test, when's the right time to take the medicine. If you're down there in the trenches treating this disease, what you learn is that you get exposed to a virus two days later you're starting to develop your symptoms. Your first symptom is going to be horrible fatigue. Most people write that off because they think they're tired because they were up late the night before, they're stressed. So the fatigue issue initially is overridden. Then they get a sore throat, scratchy throat, runny nose, a little cough, sometimes a headache, sometimes a low-grade fever. Any combination of those things on day three, you've got COVID. And those are very specific, and muscle aches, those are very specific things for COVID. We're now in flu season. I'll get back to that in a minute because some of these symptoms now overlap. But right now we're seeing way more COVID than we are flu. And so someone calls up and they have these symptoms. So the way Paxlovid, this is the Pfizer drug that's oral, the way it works, it works like other antiviral medicines. It stops the virus from replicating, from making more virus. So now your system has two, maybe three days of that virus. It's already in your system. You start the Paxlovid and you're, you're done making more of it. You still have two or three days. But people start feeling better within 24 hours because they've, they've now kept the viral load to a much lower and manageable level. You finish the Paxlovid, and a couple days later, you start getting these symptoms back. And the, the misinformation out there is that Paxlovid causes this rebound. Paxlovid doesn't cause the rebound. You're now having to deal with those two, three days of virus that weren't destroyed by the Paxlovid. They're still in your system. Your immune system has to come back now and take care of those guys. So those rebound symptoms usually last about three days. They're mild and has nothing to do with the Paxlovid. And so the information out there is so difficult. And for John, who has the symptoms, if he had started the Paxlovid right away, he would have, not only would have he have had a very mild course, but people that start the Paxlovid right away are not getting long COVID. So if you can abort the illness in the beginning, you don't get long COVID. And I've, I've gone through this. We're in another wave right now. So I'm, I'm seeing three of these a day now. And I have to go through this conversation. And the other question that John asked, which is about testing, the first couple of days, you're going to test negative because the viral load has to hit a certain threshold to show up positive on one of these antigen tests. Might be three days. So they get these symptoms. They think, gee, I, I might have COVID. The test is negative, And okay, I don't have COVID because my test is negative. <laughs> okay. So if you wait until you get a positive test to start your medicine, you now have a very significant amount of virus in your system and you're going to be sick. If you wait more than four days, they say five days, my experience as a clinician, if you go past day four, and you start this medication, forget about it. There's too much virus in your system. You're going to stay sick and you may get long COVID. So the trick here, John, and others listening, the minute you get this symptom complex, call your doctor and try to get a prescription for Paxlovid. Why are so many doctors reluctant to give it? 
is there some weird side effect? Is there some, like, what is going on? Because the number of friends that I've talked to who they won't get, but today, let me just give you an example. Steve and Danielle, a married couple. Steve yesterday tests positive for COVID. They've not gotten it yet. Danielle, his wife, texts me and I say, try to go get the Paxlovid. He can't get it. And, and they Zoom with the doctor this morning. The doctor won't give it to him. The doctor says, that's for people with pre-existing conditions. You're going to be fine. Danielle has a Zoom with her doctor and she doesn't even have symptoms yet. And her doctor prescribes it to her. So like, what is happening? It, it, just, it just feels like doctors, when I, when I was coming up, they would write a prescription for an antibiotic if you had a tiny sniffle in your nose. So like, why all of a sudden are we, are we being so precious with giving, it seems like just give them out unless there's some horrible side effect. Am I totally off base here? It's misinformation. And if you, again, you don't have to have a pre-existing condition to be treated. And people that have mild COVID illnesses can still have long COVID. But how frustrating if you're listening to this and you're that person who just called your doctor and can't get it. Dave, before you jump, can I get a couple quick questions relating to COVID answered like? People always ask, did my strong COVID reaction, my vaccination reaction, does that mean then I have better immunity. I've heard that a ton of times from people. Is that nothing? Means it nothing? means that you have good immunity, that the immune system is responding to the vaccine. The vaccine gives you this mutated or inactive form of it. and the But the immune system doesn't know if that thing's asleep or awake, but it sees it and it comes in and reacts. The bigger the response, the better your immune response is to that virus. So if I don't get responses from vaccines, it's failed? I'm a failure? No, that isn't true. In the very beginning of this illness, when we were first getting our vaccines, everybody had a response. Everybody had some kind of reaction. Right. Once you've had your first set of vaccines, you not only have the immune response from the T cells, which is that immediate reactor, you also have created the B cell immune's ability to memorize and remember that virus. Then when you come back and you get another vaccine and you don't react as much, it's because your immune system recognizes what's coming in. I got it. And I'm also on my 16th shot. I'm kidding. <laughs> Moderna carries a higher risk of myocarditis. That's somewhat true. There is a slightly higher percentage of people getting myocarditis from that vaccine, but the number of people getting myocarditis in general is very low. And okay. it tends to be in young males in their 20s to the mid 30s. And it's a very difficult problem to have. You get horrible chest pain, you're short of breath, you look like, feel like you're having a heart attack. If you're 23 years old and you're having this, you're not likely to be having a heart attack. All right. And the last question, David, because you were coming back to this, you said as far as the viruses, there's a triple wave now of viruses happening because you got COVID, you got this, and you got, what's the other one? The um, RSV. RSV things. You got those three things happening. And some people are saying the reason it's happening so bad is because everybody was protected for so long and was wearing masks and didn't get any kind of infections that there's like a gap where people's immune systems lapsed. Is that accurate? That's exactly true, Peter. And people that have been vaccinating for flu throughout their life, when they get a flu, they have a much milder case because every year that vaccine is trying to keep up with what the mutations are likely to be. So by the time we're in our 40s, if we've been getting these right along, we're going to have a pretty good immune response to that virus. But you're absolutely right in the sense that this winter, 
for the first time, we're starting to see flu, which is why we asked everybody a couple months ago to get their flu vaccine. So that if this situation came up where, gee, doctor, I'm, I'm having muscle aches, I got a sore throat, we can somewhat rule out the flu because they were vaccinated. That vaccine, just for reference, has about a 60% effective rate. But again, the longer you've had those vaccines, that number goes up. And the symptoms are a little bit different. So it's becoming harder for clinicians now to be able to separate, is this flu, is this... And for RSV, which is the respiratory syncytial virus that little kids get, but adults can catch this, they're coughing. So cough is the mainstay of that virus. And with flu, those symptoms tend to be far less severe, and you don't get that exhaustion that you get with mm. COVID. Got it. What do you say to a healthcare practitioner when you're trying to get the Paxlovid, you have a positive test or whatever, you're trying to get the treatment, what can you say? And they say, oh no, you, you don't need it. You're young and strong. You don't need it. What do you say? Well, at that point, you look for another practitioner to help you with that. Someone that is either an infectious disease doctor, an internist, a general practitioner, someone that sees this all the time. My recommendation is to have this conversation with your doctor before you get sick to say, I've heard this information. I've had experience with this with friends. How can you help me to protect myself? The other thing that's very interesting, and this is sort of off-label, if two people are in the home and one person comes down with this and is sick, and that significant other has been with them that whole time, if they start the Paxlovid, even though they're asymptomatic at that point, because they're definitely exposed, and they're definitely going to get that illness. Right. Of if course. they start the Paxlovid when they're asymptomatic, they're not going to get the illness. You're going to prevent the illness. And this is not something that I think the government wants us to know because they're paying for the Paxlovid. So um, there's not some horrible side effect or anything like that. It's Everything you eat will taste like a hubcap when you're on this. So you do get this metallic taste. goes away when you stop the medicine. Some people may get a little nauseous. Some people may get a little diarrhea. Most people get nothing except this metallic taste. And and fewer viruses. I don't know. Seems like a pretty good trade-off to me. By the way, I think John got a really good answer. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you contact us at bedsidematters.org. That's how you ask a question. And maybe Dr. Kipper will answer it for you. There you go. Thank you, Anna, for today. And Dr. Kipper thank and producer you. Laurie, thank you. And thank you for listening. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired? Follow us at bedsidematters.org and uh, we'll see you next episode. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.